Hi, this is Roddy Wachtel. You're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hey, Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? Hey, hey, diggers. Another edition of Deeper Digs. And this is part two of our salute to Jimi Hendrix that will conclude with the November 27th birthday bash. Yeah, don't forget about Friday, November 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Kiss the Sky presents a live stream of their annual Jimi Hendrix birthday bash direct from the historic Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York. Go see why Rolling Stone magazine has said yes. Believe the hype. This show lives up to it. And why Access TV crowned Kiss the Sky featuring left-handed guitar virtuoso Jimmy Blue, the world's greatest tribute to Jimi Hendrix. Kiss the Sky recreates Hendrix's most iconic concert moments in full replica wardrobe and gear so well that they have had the honor of playing with all the surviving members of Hendrix's own bands, including Billy Cox and uh, one of our guests today, uh, Gerardo Velez. Check out BearsvilleTheater.com or at Kiss the Sky uh, Tribute, Kiss the Sky Tribute pages on Facebook for more information. All right. See you there. All right, we have two more Hendrix aficionados with us today. Carmine Apice and Gerardo Velez, who I just told you about, is coming right up. Business first will be quick. The big news this week is that the awesome boys over at Decibel Geek have joined the Pantheon Network. Launched in April of 2011, Chris Sinzak, a former rock journalist, started the podcast and soon after decided to bring in a co-host to add more variety, enter Aaron Camaro. Aaron, a veteran of rock radio from the state of Wisconsin, joined the show in August of 2011, and the show has been a weekly audio download stream focusing on rock and metal music ever since. The Decibel Geek podcast is regularly consumed by tens of thousands of listeners who love rock and metal music. In 2017, the podcast surpassed 1 million downloads and continues to go strong. Decibel Geek has been regularly ranked in the top 200 uh, and what's hot sections of music podcasts in iTunes, as well as featured in uh, Nashville scene uh, uh, in August of 2017. Um, Love this show. Plus, these guys are responsible for putting together the Rock and Pod Expo every year in Nashville. Well, every year except this year, but we are crossing our fingers for 2021 and you can bet Pantheon Podcast will be there in force. Very excited to have Chris and Aaron as a part of the team. If you haven't checked out Decibel Geek before, please do. Uh, if you want more info uh, on uh, the Rock and Pod, go to NashvilleRockandPodExpo.com. Okay, other than a sweet thank you to our Patreon fans and members who give every month, we are set to go. Of course, if you ever want to become a contributing member yourself, just go to PantheonPodcast.com, click on the support the shows, or you can find links to Patreon, Public for swag, or you can just buy us a quick cup of coffee. All right, let's do it. Let's get to some more Jimi Hendrix. Hey! 
Okay, two more big-time Hendrix guys. One who played with Jimmy at Woodstock, Gerardo Velez, uh, will be joining us in just a bit. But first up is someone who supported him on tour and was a dear friend, the legendary Carmine Apice. Carmine is another of those Zelig-like characters in rock and roll. I mean, he's just everywhere. First and foremost, he was the drummer of the hugely influential Vanilla Fudge back in the 60s, a band known predominantly for their slow, extended, heavy rock arrangements of contemporary hit songs, most notably You Keep Me Hanging On, uh, which was featured in uh, Quentin Tarantino's last film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We talk a little bit about that, but also great versions of Ticket to Ride and Eleanor Rigby. Check out the snare work on Eleanor Rigby, I'm I'm telling you. Uh, This is where the heavy comes from, the vanilla fudge, for the metal uh, of later years, which Carmine says doesn't actually come together until Metallica. Interesting. Well, we'll talk about that, too. Let me tell you, Diggers, so many legends point to Carmine as their inspiration. When both Bonzo and Pert cite you as an influence, (laughs) yeah, you're... uh, Uh, You're settled uh, in the pantheon of drummer gods, that is for sure. You know, interestingly, the Fudge has not been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And we do get into that uh, a bit. Um, Did I say interesting? I meant travesty. Yes. But Carmine is not just a heavy drummer, though he swears he plays the same no matter the gig. After the Fudge... He begins Cactus with Fudge bassist Tim Bogert. Uh, again, a short-lived band, but a long history of influence. And Cactus does come back now and again, uh, including a tour just last year. Uh, so does the Fudge, for that matter. Um, the the Bogart and uh, Carmine hookup uh, continues with Beck. Uh, that's Jeff Beck uh, for Beck, Bogart, and, P- and a piece, which gave us uh, just one studio uh, album and one live album. In 1977, the drummer finds himself in uh, old singer of the Beck group, Rod Stewart's band, at Peak Rod. Uh, disco beats and all. Carmine co-authors Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks. In uh, 83, he's in Ozzy's touring band for a short stint before being fired by Sharon. Yeah, we'll talk about that, too. Uh, Since then, he continues to play with any and all legends of the rock world. Really, just too many to mention. It's one of those CVs that's a mile long. In 2005, he became a supporter of our dear friends at Little Kids Rock, and now he has his own show, uh, his own YouTube show, I should say, with drummer brother Vinny apiece. Hmm. Maybe they should be on Pantheon. Uh, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I give you Diggers Carmine apiece.
Peace. Welcome uh, to Deeper Digs. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Very good. How are you doing? Uh, you know, we're all surviving. Uh, yes, lots of things surviving. going on. Uh, it's been a crazy year. So, you know, I got to ask first, you know, what, what's, what's been your COVID-19 plan uh, over the last eight months? Well, so? I moved from uh, L.A. last June. I sold my house. My kids and family are still there. And moved more towards the East Coast where my girlfriend, the radio chick, Leslie Gold, been living. We had a house in Connecticut that we were in, and we sold it during COVID. And we bought this house in Florida last year, and it was being renovated. And then we had to move here. So we moved to Florida. Oh, wow. At the end That's of May. a big deal. Okay. Yeah. So we moved to Florida. We had to pack up the house and everything, and which is great, though, because I, I have a studio here with, with drums in it and recording uh, devices and I've been recording uh, a new instrumental solo album down here. I did a project with my brother. Uh-huh. I did a modern drummer festival from from my studio. I'm shooting videos tomorrow because we're re-releasing all of my drum books uh, with modern drummer uh, publications and with with digitizing everything so you can buy it physically and and digitally. And I'm doing videos for Amazon that's going to be sh- you know on Amazon around the world. Yeah, and this is an update to the realistic rock drum method that was first published in 1972, right? Yes. Yeah. Now it's sold uh, 450,000 units, and uh, and we're planning to sell a lot more. They're going to be doing it in a few different languages, and uh, it's all happening while I'm here. Right. 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 And And, uh, yeah, it's great. I mean, I even did a documentary for Viacom in the studio. And it's going to be out called, uh, I think it's something like about the songs. And they did like Metallica and Police, Madonna, and they did Rod Stewart. And the two songs they're talking about, Do You Think I'm Sexy and Young Turks, which, which I you wrote. played on. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote. I oh. wrote them both. I oh, I them. didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. And I played on them. And they had a camera crew come here and we set up. And I had Zoom guys from the UK mm-hmm. you know, ask me questions. And we, we did like a five-hour video shoot that's coming out in December in the UK on BBC TV. Nice. And and I did with, with my new instrumental album, I did a reggae rock version of Do You Think I'm Sexy instrumentally. Oh, right. Okay, so gonna, that's so awesome. So I'm going to try and get that out at the same time. Yeah, yeah. In the UK especially, because every seems everyone that releases Do You Think I'm Sexy in the UK makes the chart somewhere. <laughs> you know? so. Well, that must be nice. It, it, it's, a, it's a constant comeback, huh? Yeah, and I'm talking to Yes's manager. It's his label, and he's really knocked out by the material we got. And and uh, so I'm, I'm excited. So I've been doing that. I did stuff with my brother. We did a track together, and uh, we're working on a new track for my drum wars with him, you know, and uh-huh. a new drum, a Peace Brothers album. And, and things are happening, you know. And so I haven't so really, played a gig since February. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you've been busy. So you figured out a way to, to, to make uh, the COVID thing uh, not, you know, affect you as much as it has so many others, yeah. well, especially with lucky. the touring I, business you know, being gone. I, I mean, I've been lucky. I, I, I had a lot of hits. I was involved in hits, and I had Vanilla Fudge, you know, 
last the end of last year was in that Quentin Tarantino movie. We got paid good money for that. We got oh, once upon a things. time in Hollywood, right? Yeah, we had yeah. the last six minutes was hanging on. That's yeah, right. That song never dies. That song never <laughs> dies. We just got another thing from uh, hanging on for a uh, a documentary, a snowboarding uh, documentary. You know, so we got all that and building up sexy royalties and you know, I mean. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm old. I'm 74 years old in, in December, so I'm on yeah, don't look Social it. Security. Yeah, <laughs> I got my pensions. I got you know all the different pensions from the unions I was in all my life. And, yeah, you know, so financially I'm all right. I own real estate. You know, I've got real estate. I do as a as a secondary kind of business, and I love real estate. I'm actually going to write a book called Rock and Real Estate. And all my real estate experience. That sounds interesting. Yeah. What, what's you know? it like? Okay. I got to ask, what's it like when uh, a client, you know, uh, hires you and doesn't know that you're Carmine a piece and you show up uh, to show a house? Well, I don't show houses. See, I just invest in them. Oh, okay. Okay. See, okay I, so I just invest in houses. Like we have a bunch of houses in Memphis. We have a place in St. Martin. You okay. Know, okay. Rent. Okay. You know, I have a duplex in Florida, but mm -hmm. I don't show up there. But I do, I, I mean, when, I, if, when I'm buying like the duplex, I showed up, mm -hmm. you know, but it was empty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, but I, I did, you know, I read the auditor deal by Trump years ago. Uh -huh. and, and in the book, it said, use your celebrity if you have it. Yeah, so I sure. use it. I use it when I have to. Right, like of When course. I go down to <laughs> Memphis and I, I visit the management company mm -hmm. who manages my houses, I bring CDs and, you know. Nice, right, bring, right, right. Yeah, you know, books and CDs uh, and drumsticks yeah. autographed and pictures. Gre grease the skids and, a little bit, right. And I grease everybody. Yeah, know? of course, and of I got, course. And then I got some fans that were, you know, own an air conditioning company. And because of that, I would get him like a a gold record, you know, nice. a fudge and nice. my friend. And he yeah. does better deals for me and fixing my air conditioning, and, you know, stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, but let, I let me, always loved real estate. I always loved it. That's that's a little side gig. Uh, yeah. uh, we might have to get you on one of our other shows called Side Jams. Uh, that's hosted by Brian Reisman, a well-known journalist out of New York, uh, and cool. he just talks about everybody's hobbies. What not the music, but what do they do outside of music? And obviously, yeah. real estate's yeah, a big gig for you. So, you know, let's let me take you back to uh, the 1960s and uh, Vanilla Fudge. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, you know, you guys are considered, you know, one of the, uh, uh, if not, you know, inventors, the precursors of what we might call hard rock or even heavy metal uh, these days. And, you know, well, we used uh, to call it heavy, not metal. We just heavy, call it right. heavy music. <laughs> yeah. You know? So how, how did that come about? Uh, you know, I think you were asked to join the band uh, uh, even before um, Tim Bogart was in the band, right? No, no, no. I was the last one in. Well, you were the last one. You know, Tim and Mark came to see me play and they were going to try this new stuff that was going on in New York called production numbers that was originated by Leslie West band, the Vagrants. Okay. 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 And, and the model for it a bit was the rascals because the rascals were a New York band that used to play around and everybody knew them before they made it. Yep. And I used to see them playing in clubs and they were awesome. Mm -hmm. So when they asked me to join, they said they, they had a drummer, but he couldn't cut it. They needed somebody more technical and had a good right foot that was more R&B and could sing. So that was me. Yeah. Uh, but I had another band that was doing great, you know. And matter of fact, that other band was a band that played 
opposite this other guy named Jimmy James in a club. <laughs> and that's right. when I met Hendrix. Yeah, you know? let's talk about that. So, so he, was he... Playing in, he was playing in, in a band. He had his hair slicked back. He always wore outrageous outfits, played with his teeth, Yeah. played the same kind of guitar as my guy in my band named Ronnie Lejack. They had the thin strings. They bent thing. They had distortion boxes. Him and Jimi Hendrix and another guy called The Wizard were the only guys in New York that played like that. And we played a, one gig with Jimmy. And... Uh, it was a four nights a week gig, though. You know, you play four or five nights a week. Yeah. We play 30 minutes, and he played 30 minutes. So when you do that with a band, you get to know the people. Right, know? right. Hanging so out. So we got right. to know him. We used to go up in black prostitutes' apartments in the area. It was a bad area. The mm -hmm. Upper West Side was bad at the time. Remember that movie, Panic and Needle Park? That's what it was. Yeah. Drug addicts, hookers, you know, dealers. Yeah, like, like Alphabet alcoholics, City. Uh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, it was bad. Yeah. So we went to this... This chick's a palmer smoking a joint, and, and Jimmy's talking about making it. Myself, I didn't really care about making it. I just want to make Play. a living in drums. Yeah. I didn't want to work a day job. <laughs> you know, So I tried that, and it didn't work, and I was playing pretty constantly. So that's the band I was playing with when I was asked to join Vanilla Fletcher, who called The Pigeons. Mm -hmm. But we got to know Jimmy. I got to know Jimmy in those days. Yeah. And then so when they asked me to join, I said, well, I'm really happy with my band. I'm making good money. They said, well, at least come down and check it out. We have this manager, Phil Basile, who's I didn't know at the time was connected to the mafia. Matter of fact, Goodfellas were the guys he was connected to. Henry oh, Hill yeah. used to come to my house and sell me stuff out of the trunk, trunk of his car. They call me, I got the stuff that just fell off a truck, you know? <laughs> you know so there Here, was that, you that, bet. Was, that was that was the people who were backing Vanilla Fudge. And he said they'll pay us a salary. You know, and we all we got to do is create the music and try and make it. I said, oh, I'll go check them out. So I went and checked them out, and they were awesome. Mark was an amazing singer, a great keyboard player. Tim Bogle, I never heard anyone play bass like that. Right. He was a great singer, too. And Vinnie Martell was a really good guitar player, a great voice. Mm -hmm. And I fit right in there because when I was young, I used to sing doo-wop. So I had the vibrato like Mark Stein had. They all had. Right. So our vibratos matched. And I, so I joined. I got paid a salary of 100 bucks a week while we created all the music. And then uh, we just played. And we just played and we played in clubs and we rehearsed and played, made new arrangements. And then we had, you keep me hanging on as one of the arrangements. Yeah, and, I was going to go. We always there. noticed whenever we played that song, people would stop trying to dance us, which was hard anyway, because <laughs> our music was all over the place. And they would come up and watch us play because we were really a theatrical, crazy band. You know, with the, with, you know if you look at us on the Ed Sullivan show, you saw how crazy we were. Right, right. So for that time, really, really me, over me the top. Right. my sticks and yeah. beating the hell out of drums. No drummers did that, you know. Yeah. And Vinny and, and Tim up front were moving like... Lunatic. It was an act. It was not just it was, uh, it was a, a bunch of musicians standing up there playing. It was, it but was, we got uh, it was into it yeah. because we got into the music. And what we did with yeah. the songs... Like you keep hanging on when first started, set me free, why don't you? Mm -hmm. you know, yeah, Holland Dozer, Holland Dozer, Holland. Uh, the lyric, the lyric from, message from of that yeah. would be called as a very hurting song. Yeah. You know, it's very hurting emotionally. When you're in that position in the love situation, you're hurting. Yeah. You know, you're depressed yeah. and everything. So we tailored the music to be hurting mm -hmm. music. 
down. Slowed it down, right. Depressed, mm -hmm. slowed it down, made really set emotion into those lyrics. And that's what we would do with everything. People get ready. It was like a gospel song. We turned it into a church song. Right. Organ right. in the vocal. Eleanor yeah. Rigby. What yeah. did we do there? We we made it into an eerie church, you know, churchyard cemetery kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. That's what we did. You darkened it. You darkened it. We darkened it. everything yeah. And, yeah. We, and we put the moods of the lyrics into the mood of the music. Right, right. And that's right. what we did. And you know, we cut you keep me hanging on in the one one take demo mono everything at once yeah yeah i said it was seven and a half minutes of my that changed my life yeah that, I, that i'm sure it demo. did yeah that was the demo and then we went on the radio and atlantic heard it on the radio and they signed us they changed our name and uh you know shadow morton produced it so he got it on the radio with scott muni and murray decay you know and wor was the first underground oh, station in right New York. Yeah, FM. And that's yep. when all this underground FM station yep. was just starting to come up. And you could and do they, those seven-minute songs and things yeah, like and, that. And yeah, and they, they played it in a contest, like Rate the Record. And then we were up against the Beatles and the Beach Boys and all the big acts, and we'd always win. You know, nice. They call in and we constantly win. That's why Atlantic signed us. Uh, it's a great version of, uh, you know, and yeah. uh, as, as you said, uh, when we first uh, started here, you know, it just recently was used uh, to end uh, the Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, so, and it was uh, also used in the final episode of Sopranos three times. Yeah. And, and many, many other movies. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that's a staple. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah somebody just, always pulls that out every couple of years, definitely. It's, it's amazing. Uh, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And that gives us royalties and yeah. and you know and it gives us other stuff that other things have happened you know i mean for me i've had all, oh a huge career the only band i haven't had uh, like fudge is in radio i mean uh tv and movies and bba was in tv and movies and and uh rod stewart with the sexy and hot legs and oh, all yeah. in different tv and movies and, you know but ne never cactus uh, unfortunately but you know, so yeah. it's been great. So that's yeah. why, you know, I'm still here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And still doing fine and doing okay yeah. during, during COVID. Yes. Thank God. Yeah. So, yes. um, so Jimmy James, uh, who you got to know before he, yes. you know, busted out and became, uh, uh Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, the next time you saw him was in London, uh, at, uh, the speakeasy. Yes. And, yes. uh, and you guys kind of recognized each other, huh? You, well, he didn't recognize me. Uh, I recognized him because when he came out in America, we were, you know, Vanilla Fudge, and we were yeah. doing very good. And we, we were, you know, he's looking at Rolling Stone or whatever the rock magazines or whoever would print stuff about rock. And I saw a picture of this guy, Jimi Hendrix, playing his guitar with his teeth. And I said, whoa, except now you have the electric hair. <laughs> You know, not slick not back. slick back like Little Richard, but yeah, uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And more, he, the more natural, right? Yeah, but, but I, I said, whoa, who's this guy? I, that looks like it could be Jimmy James. I said to myself. So then, as we started reading up on it, we realized it was him. So when we did go to London, we were playing there, and I saw him in the London Speakeasy. Speakeasy had uh, a restaurant in it, and I was at the bar, and I saw Jimmy in the restaurant. So I went in there and I said to him, Jimmy, how you doing? Carmine, I'm from New York. 
I used to play with you opposite you in a band at Uptown at the Lighthouse, you know, and you were Jimmy James and, and the Blue Flames, and I was in the band called Thursday's Children. He said, yeah, I kind of remember that. I said, yeah, we smoked some pot together, and you were looking over Broadway, talking about how you're going to make it. Well, you made it. Yeah, you did. <laughs> he said, yeah, he goes, so what are you doing here? I said, well, I play with Vanilla Fudge. He goes, man, I love the fudge. Oh, that's I nice. Said, oh. I said, wow, cool, man. I said, yeah. So we both made it. I, I, you know, I distinctly remember that night you know, we were smoking that joint and he wanted to make it. And I really didn't care if I made it. But now here we are. We both made it. We're both on the charts. We're both in London. And you're playing London next week. You're playing uh, the Savile Theater. We're playing it the week after with The Who. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we were in England for about three weeks, you know. Yeah, that, and, Sa uh, that Savile Theater uh, concert was, uh, that's legendary. It's, that's where the Beatles yeah. all showed up uh, and yeah. Jimmy walks out and, and, and plays uh, Search and Pepper uh, yeah. in front of them it, it, when the album had just come out like a day before yeah. or something. Yeah, and, we, uh, and uh, we played there. We saw The Who. We played there with The Who. We blew The, off, the Who off that night. All the, all the reviews were like Vanilla Fudge blew them off. And I was like, whoa, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome, well, that's you know? that's quite an act to try to blow off the stage. Uh, yeah, they, they were yeah. they were rather incendiary at that time uh, as they well. Good. They were they were yeah. good bands. Yeah, yeah. And we saw yeah. Hendrix there, and he was awesome. You know, people yeah. went nuts over him. It's the first time they saw him in England. Yeah, and uh, they went nuts over him. And, uh, and then we continued the, the, the relationship. And in 1968, yeah, you guys toured. Yeah, 1968, uh, because the first time Hanging On came out in July. 67, it only went to number seven, mm. uh, 70. But the album came out in September and went from number 200 to number 33, and then eventually made the top four. And we were the first band to ever get a top four album, top 10 album, without having a smash single. Right, oh, okay. Right? And that's mm -hmm. when we went on in 68, the Ed Sullivan Show. Right, right. So, it, so, so in 68, the album was top 10, but then we did another album, and it came out in like March or April, the second album, and that really screwed mm -hmm. up our whole career because it was a bad move, you know, the album. The beat goes on, it was a concept album. Shouldn't have been. Should have done what we did on the first album, which we didn't. And uh, it's kind of blew it. So we had to right. do another album together of originals, and Season of the Witch was on that one. And that became somewhat of a Oh, yes. So, so we had three yep. albums on the charts, you know, and then Atlantic decided to re-release You Keep Me Hanging On. And then You Keep Me Hanging On, as the other albums were starting to go up the charts, went up to top 10 and brought the first album back up to top 15, and the, and the Renaissance album was top 20. And The Beat Goes On was like somewhere in the 70s, you know. And then we went on tour with Hendrix, and I remembered Many, many times, and we oh, partied. electric, electric, electric later, yeah. yeah, yeah, and we partied a lot with uh, with Noel and Mitch because you know Jimmy was at a point where you could, he really couldn't go out. He was a big, big, giant star. Yeah, yeah. he was a big. Yeah. It was his image over everything. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, yeah, we would rent boats like in San Diego. We played San Diego Stadium. We only played to twenty five percent of the stadium. You know, that's you know, when you were big. That's what, oh, that, that was, that's that what was, meant big, big back then. That was big. Yeah. That would hold uh, 40,000 people, and we played to 10, 12,000 people. You yeah, know? Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I think the arena at the time only held 7,500. You know, it was an outdoor mm -hmm. show. 
and we, we there was a lake near the hotel, and we were we would rent these little motorboats, like uh, rowboats with motors on them. And, and Mitch and Noel and Ron, me and Tim were in the other, and we'd crash into each other and just have a great oh, old bump, time. Bumper cars with the boats. Yeah, yeah, we had a great old time. But then, then at that, that night at the gig, we had a great gig. And you know, and there were many nights we blew Jimmy off the stage, according to the press, on that tour, too, because mm-hmm. the band was really hot, you know? And oh, Jimmy yeah. Was hot. Oh, and Vanilla Fudge is a What is I a remember was walking after we, we were up watching Jimmy for a while, and then we started walking back to the dressing room. This was an oval-shaped stadium. So we played to this part of the stadium, like over right. here. And we had to walk well back here to the dressing rooms. So as I'm walking, he started Voodoo Child with the Wawa. And it was yeah. echoing around all the empty seats on both sides, oh, wow. filling in stereo. It sounded unbelievable, you know? And then uh-huh. he went into the song, and it was echoing around the seats. Now we had to leave, so we had, that's why we were going back to the, to the dressing room. But then on that same tour, I think we were in Seattle. Now, Mark Stein says we were somewhere else, but I think it was Seattle. Yeah, and hometown Jimmy, for Jimmy. Yeah, and Jimmy was like just releasing, getting the, he just got the demos of the mastering for Electric Lady. And we, he had a record player in his room. So he invited all of us up to his room to listen to the record, to get our reaction kind of, you know? Right, right. So we heard Electric Lady Lamb for the very first time with Jimmy in his room. And he sat in the corner, like very, he was a very timid guy. You know, he was a very timid guy. He sat in the corner and just watched everyone's reaction. Everybody was like, yeah, wow, this is awesome. Everyone's freaking out. And, you know, he could have a nice smile on his face and, and uh, you know, that was, those were the two really big things that, that uh, stuck in my head, except for the Hollywood Bowl. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. And now back to the program. We played the Hollywood Bowl and uh, our guitar player took acid before we went on stage. Okay. <laughs> So in the solo uh, case, unless unless you're in the Grateful Dead, probably not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> we had 40 minutes to play, for uh, 45, whatever we had, an hour. I don't know what we had to play. Right, right. But his solo in Shotgun was supposedly like two minutes, three minutes long. It was 15 minutes, <laughs> and we couldn't get him to stop. And then while we were on, people were freaking out. And they loved it. They were jumping in at the time. The Hollywood Bowl had a. a you know, I had a, a fountain filled with water, you know. Oh, in front of the stage. In front of the right. stage. Yeah, that's which right. Which they ended up covering it after this gig. Because <laughs> it had lights in it and shit. Oh, and electricity. People, people and water. Were jumping and people. In, <laughs> were jumping in there to yeah. try and get closer to the fudge while we were on, you know. And it created a big hassle. So between him going overboard and the people jumping in there, we had a, a great show, but it screwed up kind of show too, because it put everything behind. They got to get the people out of the water, and then they had to put cops around the front so people wouldn't jump in the water when Jimmy was on, you know. And I got pictures of me hanging out on the side of the stage with Mitch and Noel, you know. When I was like 24 years old, I got my shirt open, I'm skinny, looking good, you know. And and Noel and Mitch were hanging out with me, and you know, it was really 
It was Those a great time for great us time. and a great time to, to tour yeah. with Hendrix because that's when he was at his peak. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the 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 business hadn't started uh, really wearing on yeah. him. Uh, the yeah. changes. I mean, it was still the experience uh, there. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's. You know, we all know it's a sad tale uh, yeah. how it ends. And, yeah, and uh, then you know, and then 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 the, that band broke up. They all left, yeah. and they got yeah. Billy Cox, and then Billy Cox, uh, and then uh, and Buddy Miles, and, uh, and, and Buddy Miles Bandages. came in. I remember yeah. the first gig they recorded live at the Fillmore East. Mm -hmm. Buddy Miles and I, that we were at that gig, and I remember the outfit Jimmy had on. It was like this really colorful thing that went like this in different colors, all the way down, shirt and pants, and and you know we went backstage and hung out with them before they went on, after they went on, so pot, you know, did all that stuff. And Buddy was like, Buddy always liked me because he always loved Vanilla Fudge. And, He'd yeah. always come and give me a hug, and you, you disappear with Buddy when he hugs you. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially a skinny, skinny little white guy like you. Huh? Yeah, yeah. At the time, <laughs> I was skinny. I was like 150 pounds, you know. And then, you know, he opened up Electric Lady, and then we started Cactus, and we recorded mm -hmm. uh, the second album there. But we did our very first gig with Cactus with Jimi Hendrix. You did? Yeah, you at did. a festival yeah. in Philadelphia. And Jim McCarty, our guitar player, was in the Buddy Miles Express. Mm -hmm. And Jimmy oh, okay. produced that album. Uh -huh. So Jimmy McCarty knew Hendrix really well. We knew Hendrix really well, me and Tim. And, you know, so we, we, we hung out at that festival. And, and the very last gig that Hendrix did was the Isle of Wight. That's right. Yeah. And we were with him at that. You were. At that. We, was Cactus, that Cactus played there and we stayed, we stayed the three days. And the night he went on, uh, we were there. We were, you know, Jimmy, our Jimmy and, and Hendrix were backstage playing acoustic guitars together. And then our Jimmy, Hendrix, our Jimmy McCarty stayed with Hendrix in London for a couple mm -hmm. of days. Then he went home, and two days later, Jimmy was found dead. Yeah, that, that must have really hurt when you yeah, got that. Yeah, and news, it was, uh, right? for us, it was like, oh, my God, you know, because, you know, we, we knew him really well. Yeah. Horrible accident, really, um, really well. you know, just too many, uh, too many uh, substances all at one time, I yep. think is yep. the, the end result. And, um, and you know, you a, never knew, sometimes that, uh, you never knew what the substance is. Like you go no. play the festival, you drink some of the punch, you had acid in it. Right, right. You no, know, right. or you have some of the wine, had acid in it. I mean, it's terrible. It got to the point where I stopped drinking anything that wasn't like you didn't an open can. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know? I mean, same yeah. thing with cactus that we played the Puerto Rico festival. You know, we, we drank some of the wine and it was a spike with mescaline. You know, Oof. we were up for yeah. 12 hours. We went on the next afternoon. You know, so we went on. Yeah. We were still, still, still messed up, you know? Yeah. Uh, there's a, a time and place for all things. Oh, and, man. Uh, that, I mean, you always remember. Those that. are before the music business became the music business. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Way yeah. before that. Yeah, yeah, it was just fun. So we all recorded albums. We all toured. Everybody had a record deal. It wasn't like nobody looking for. A no, it wasn't deal. competition. It was. No, uh, it was, it was collaborative. We yeah. had a good time. Yeah. I mean, I remember when yeah. we were recording down in uh, Electric Ladyland. That Jimmy would go in, and we'd be in the main room. He'd be in the back room. He'd come in, say yeah. hi. We'd say hi. We'd go and listen to him. You know. Yeah. And, and even when Jimmy died, and Mitch was recording. Uh, Cry of Love album, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mitch was re-recording all the drums. 
you know, at Electric Ladyland, you know, but it had Jimmy's vibe everywhere, you know? Yeah, yeah. So 50 years on, um, you know, since we lost him to the Angels, um, you know, why, why do you think he's still so relevant? Because he was amazing. He was an innovator. I just did a, a I just did a, two hours ago and same a documentary about Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, yeah. And, who's and, who's and, probably and, the only other guy that fits in that category? Well, there's Jeff Beck is in there. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's Jeff Beck in there, and you know Jimmy Page, Clapton, they're in there. I mean, th those are the those are the guys. Yeah, you know, yeah. Hendrix, Clapton, you know, Eddie Van Halen. I, I think between all of them, they influence everybody. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, same with like drummers. There's certain drummers, you know, that uh, I was involved with at the time. Well, like you know, yourself, like, you've been you yeah. you've been uh, name checked many times by uh, many greats yeah. who, who, who yeah. have and, come and, after you. Know, you know, it's funny. I look at it in, in levels of when it started. I, I count myself in the first level that was in with Dino Donnelly, Mitch Mitchell, Ginger Baker, and Keith Moon. That was that level. Right. 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 Mm -hmm. And then Dino kind of fell out. And that was the only American left. And then the next level was like Ian Pace, John Bonham, uh, Don Brewer, you know, that level. Then 72 came the jazz rockers, Billy Cobham, Lenny right. White, right. all those guys. You know, and then the next level came with like the, the police, Alex Van Halen. Stuart, uh, Neil, Neil Peart, uh, Stuart Neil Copeland Peart. and, and yeah, people like that. that. Level, yeah. You know? yeah. 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 But together, we influenced everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's where it is with guitars. But, but Jimmy was the first. The difference with Jimmy was Jimmy came out and he influenced everything. The fashion, mm -hmm. the playing, the, uh, the stage persona, you know, everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it was the first black guy to do that. Yeah, yeah, to 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 not uh, go the the more traditional like uh, gospel soul R and B way, right, right, and yeah. you know I mean, but he he was like Bo Diddley, yeah, Bo Diddley was kind of like that, yeah, Chuck but Chuck Bo was, Diddley, uh, yeah, Chuck, yeah, those two guys were like that, but they weren't technically great players, no, not like Jimmy, Jimmy was a yeah. great player. I mean, come on, he played upside down, yeah, he yeah. learned upside down. That yeah. that alone was an innovation, yeah, yeah, that nobody's ever done before. Now you have um a few guys play like that now yeah yeah you know? but he was uh, the first and uh and he yeah. you know he turned it into a big act like what you guys were doing uh you know as, yeah. as, as you were saying earlier about the vanilla fudge that this was more than just musicians standing up there doing their thing it was yes. it was a show it was let's put it, it, it but it was integrated with the music it was it, yeah. it wasn't like yeah. a steps or anything but it was like a total feel and in and per, uh, putting that vibe off into the audience. Yeah, and in that time, 67, the English bands were king. Yeah, yeah, well, British Invasion, yeah. And, and they used to just stand there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, I mean, he made it big in England because... He didn't just stand he there. He didn't stand there. <laughs> right, right. But he learned that in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Playing all those clubs. Yeah. And yeah. that's where we learn. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but the British bands just stood there. Even Jeff Beck, as great as he is, you know, he did a couple of cool guitar moves, but back in those days, you know, he just stood there. Yeah. Yeah. Clapton stood there. Yeah. You know? Well, if you, if you, Townsend, if you see Townsend, those, yeah. Was, Townsend's the only guy he stood there, but he did this. The, the, yeah. The, I just lost my headset. <laughs> the, the, he, uh, he the wind. Right. Least, you right, know what I'm saying? Right. 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 The windmills. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and, and, and 
And Keith Moon was something to look at. Yeah. You know, he was twirling sticks and all that. Yeah. But, you know, Ginger Baker was, you know, he was nothing to look at. No, no. No. Yeah. No, just. But he played great. Yep. Yeah. And the cream were the playing band. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's where Vanilla Fudge ended up being a, pl a playing band and visual band. Hendrix was a playing band and a visual band. Mm -hmm. you know? and, and Jeff Beck Group ended up being a playing band and a visual band. Yeah. Because Roddy yeah. Wood and Rod Stewart together with Jeff was oh, a real yeah. Yeah. great band. Yeah. You know, Something to band. see. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, rock and roll now is, gosh, north of 70 years old now. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's still, it's still thought of, I mean, you know, it, you know, I, I actually kind of started what I'm doing here uh, about five years ago. Cause I felt like uh, rock and roll was dying. It was about, it was maybe it had run its course. Maybe this was it. So I wanted to get as much of it as I could and express as much of it as we could and show uh, yeah. everybody. But it seems to be making a, a return here. I mean, you know, I don't know if you've uh, caught some of these kids that are doing like these TikToks or, uh, uh, you know, dreams, uh, you know, a song that just recently got back into the top 10 after, you know, 43 years. Uh, there's these twins uh, on YouTube that listen to, uh, uh, to songs, classic rock songs for the first time. And they freaked out on uh, um, uh, in the air. Well, uh, uh, by Phil Collins and yeah. and that to put that song. So what, what do you think of all this? Well, well, I mean, I'm producing a young band called Kodiak. Mm -hmm. They're from New Jersey. The brothers are, are drummer, guitar player. Unbelievable, big, gigantic fans of Van Halen. They're like a young Van Halen. Right? Yeah, As a matter I see of fact, we're, yeah. Going, we're, going, we're going to L.A. Uh -huh. uh, next month to be in a new TV show called No Cover. It's going to be on Prime, and uh, the label that is interested in signing them is they're running this show, and said they want them on the show, you know, to get some exposure, and they're really good. So they're I mean, so I, so they're like Greta really Van good. Fleet or the Struts, and you know, there's yes. a, this 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 return yes. of these young kids that are basically taking. Years old, the guitar yeah. player's a monster. He's like Eddie. Yeah, Eddie was his idol. You know, so we're utilizing in the production, you know, some of the tricks that Eddie did, you know, like beginnings of songs, just the guitar and then mm -hmm. the licks and the solos are not just played out solos and melodic, really cool solos in the style of Van Halen. Mm -hmm. The songs are in the style of Van Halen. The singer sounds a little more like a Def Leppard guy. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. You know? uh, so it, it adds a little bit of a switch there. But the drummer, the drummer I met when he was 11, he won a contest. And he is in my Realistic Rock for Kids book, DVD. I met him when he was 11 and nice. his brother was six. <laughs> okay. So you've helped mentor them for a long yes. time then. Yeah. And then oh. finally, like a couple of years ago, they sent me some demos and it sounded like a punk, a punky version of Van Halen. Oh, really? Know? Okay. And, I, and, I, and at the time, Greta Van Fleet was just coming out. Yeah. I said, dude, if you're gonna go for it, let's go all the way. Yeah, go classic you know, take rock. Take away all the, the way. punk element. It's the punk element had no melody. Right. You know, it was right. like screaming, baloney melodies and the hooks. So we changed all the melodies and kept the track and went more rock. And this kid is a freaking phenomenal drummer now. Oh, I can't wait you to know? to go and listen. So go go have a listen. They got they got uh, YouTube things on it, and we're just mixing a new song now and. We did some cover songs and we've been working with this label and they keep saying that after this virus is over, they're going to sign it. 
Nice, nice, nice. If they want to have him on this show to give him some press, whether they win, whoever wins this show wins a $250,000 record recording deal with Sumerian Records. Oh, shit. Okay. All right. So, I mean, maybe they'll win, but if they don't win, they're going to get signed. If if they're talented, uh, and, and, they're great. Yeah, it's like I said. There's some sort of you know, rock and roll has died or appeared to have died several times uh, over the decades, and for some reason, it just keeps coming back, and uh, that's great. Yeah, it's just know. coming back differently now. Yeah, of course, of course. The and way always... the way it's heard, the yeah. way it's heard is so different. Yeah, I don't have a clue how all that works. Yeah, you know yeah. how these how some of these bands end up with, you know, like I, I took a band that was I, it was a a two-piece band with a singer and they were really cool they were like a, a metallica-ish kind of band mm-hmm. but it was <laughs> interesting was there they were brothers as well drummer and guitar and a singer which was unique yeah they had no bass no bass yeah yeah they were like a, uh, white yeah, stripes right, on yep. 10 yeah, yeah they were great players mm-hmm. i took them to atlantic records and i said what do you think they said well they're really good but you know how many Facebook people that I have, I don't that, know, yeah, 20,000. That's, that, that's what they you know, can. Well, that's... you know, they need to have like 250,000 and, and like 500,000 on YouTube. So I said to them, well, if they have 250 Facebook, 500 on YouTube, what do they need you for? Right. And they said, well, we'll take it up to the millions then. Uh, I said, if you're well, already I'm on sorry. that rocket ship ride, you're going you're gonna to get there anyway. Uh, yeah, you know. so anyway... Yeah. So they're still struggling to try and get it. I, I released their first album on my own little label. But again, I don't really know what to do with it, you know? And right. they sold a couple of thousand, you know? But uh, they're doing another album. And I produced the first album. They're doing another album. They're not giving up. Well, it's too bad you they know? can't be on the road, which is, you know, the traditional way of uh, yeah. you know, building they, an audience. And they tried to get on the road, but it was hard to get on the road because nobody knew them. Really? Yeah, I had another band in, in France that I, I put out on my label. I tried to help them, and uh, and uh, and same thing. But but in France now, they they actually just took it to themselves, and they went on the road. And they they made no money. They slept in the van. They did whatever it took. And now they're actually got got a bit of a following. They just got signed to a, a regular label, and they're going to release this record when this virus is over. And they can get back on the road. They have a bit of a following. They can draw two or three hundred people now wherever they go. Good, good. You know, good. But uh, you know, it's it's really hard now. Yeah, it's the music business is um, you know it's it's a sea of mediocrity, and because of that, it makes the really talented yes. difficult to rise above yeah. that. Um, yeah. You know, um, you know. Uh, again, I I think that uh, you know with hard work and uh, you know constant uh, touring, even if you have to you know be in a uh, you know a van by yourself and uh, and the and the boys and you know go from town to yeah, town. You know, you know what the problem is like like when we were making it for a very long time, even in the eighties when bands were making it getting signed, you go out and you play a gig, you get paid a couple hundred bucks, and you play. Yeah. And you, you know now. You got to pay the venue five hundred bucks to play a gig. I mean, how does that work? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? It's so difficult. Yeah. That's why. And and there's I, I less and less venues this. too. There's yeah. You know? I, I don't get how this works. You mm. know? Yeah. I mean, I was lucky when I went out with with Kiss with King Cobra because they were my friends. They paid us some money. Yeah. And people were saying, "Man, you guys are lucky. We had to pay to get on that tour." Yeah. Oh, I with said, wow. the Kiss tour. Yeah, yeah, back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, so they've been doing it since the 80s. <laughs> you know? pay, pay to play with kids. Yeah, well, you know, it's Gene. You know, Gene's always yeah, about yeah. The, the, the bucks, you know. So. Yeah. I mean, I, like, I mean, they were friends of mine. All of course, guys. of course, of course. All right, one yeah. last question, and I'll let you go. Uh, you know, last weekend, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, finally put its class of 2020 out there. How the hell is the vanilla fudge not in the Rock and Roll Who the hell knows? I don't what do we got to do? I, I didn't even know that last week they did that because, you know, yeah. I don't, I, how am I, I going to know? Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to, who's going to tell me? Yeah. yeah. I didn't see it anywhere on the internet. No, it, um, uh, well, it's, it, it's tough. Well, we, we had, yeah, we actually did some advertising for them. So we kind of, okay, well, I didn't see anything. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't see anything. I yeah. don't even know who was inducted. Uh, yeah. Um, Nine Inch Nails, Depeche Mode, uh, Doobie Brothers, uh, uh, Notorious B.I.G., and T-Rex. Oh, oh, and Whitney Houston. T-Rex. Yeah. Now, give me a break. <laughs> how, uh, how is T-Rex warrant the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Um, you know, glam rock, uh, you know, we, we, we could go into a deep discussion on the possibilities of Mark Boland yeah. and what he, he brought to the party in the early seventies. Yeah. But, uh, but, um, you know, again, how is the vanilla fudge not in the rock? Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were, before the pandemic, we were starting a, um, a petition kind of thing at all the gigs. We had hundreds of people sign it, yeah. put a thing on the websites and do it. But then the pandemic happened and. You know, it is a campaign. I about it. Yeah, there is but a campaign. You know what? I mean, these are, I'm sure T Rex didn't do a tam campaign. Well, no. Well, uh, no. I mean, yeah. Tony, so, Tony I mean, Visconti. I think. I think because you know, you know, you know, it's all political and. Uh, yeah, you know. I. You know what? It, it, I don't really care. No. No. I you don't need it. Did. But. I. It would, be, it would be nice. But you know what? If they're blowing us out. Fuck them. Yeah, but you guys should be. They're missing out. I know what we did. Mm. I know who we influenced. I know who we took on the road. I know what we had, what we influenced in this business. And, you know, from the horse's mouth, from the bands themselves, you know, and having somebody like uh, Vanilla Fudge not in it, that's their loss. No. Uh, when, when you run into Jimi Hendrix and he says to you, I love the fudge. Yeah. That's all you need. And you know, and you take Led Zeppelin on the first tour, you pay for them right. to be on on the first gig. Yeah, you get their their drummer an endorsement. Well, that's right. You influence Deep Purple. Yeah, you influence, you know, yes, you influence. I mean, uh, who have all admitted that? Had all all admitted that? So. Yeah, when we did the Atlantic Festival, forty uh, fourth anniversary at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, Phil Collins was off to the side, and he said, "I came off." He said, "You." Can you don't know how much you guys influenced me? Nice to Phil hear. Phil Collins. Nice you to know? hear. Yeah. And then you know Jeff Downs from Yes. Yeah. And uh, and uh, singer in Yes. John Anderson. John Anderson. Mm -hmm. You know, just just an amazing amount of people. How they can bypass Vanilla Fudge, I just don't understand. I'm right with you, Carmine. Uh, that did, did, did Alice Cooper make it in there yet? Yes. Okay, he made it. And guess what? He opened up for us, too. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, Carmine Apiece, such a great honor to talk to you, um, especially about Jimi Hendrix and hearing some of those stories uh, yeah. for us. Yeah, I awesome. look forward to talking uh, more uh, with you in the future.
Yeah, all those stories are in my book. They stick in my life of sex, drums, and rock and roll. And you know, I'm not. I don't want to sound bitter about the Hall of Fame. I don't really no, care. No, honestly, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it'd be nice to be in there, but you know, we've won. You know, I personally and the band have won so many other awards. Long Island Hall of Fame, you know, the Rock Walk of Fame out in California. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, for me, uh, you know, I think one day, I think one day, so, I think one, day one day it's going to happen. It, it just has to. Yeah, we're we're just on, so dude, influential. So influential. We're 70, 74 years old. <laughs> all right. you know, Vinny, a guitar player, is older than that. Tim Boga is very ill. Yeah. He, he's not going to see that. Uh, that's, you know, yeah. it's, just, it's just too bad. Yeah. But you know what? I have a good life in Florida. And I don't really care. If it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. And that's the bottom line. Gotcha. Well, thanks for being with us today, man. Thank you, man. It was really awesome. There's a red house of the yonder, baby. Lord, that's where my baby stays. Let's hear it for Carmine at Peace. Do go and check out his a new show on YouTube called Hanging and Banging with Brother Vinny and uh, Ron Onesti. Plus, if you're a drummer, you have to pick up his seminal book, Realistic Rock Book. It's it's foundational. Um, and uh, and as we we discussed, uh, you know, a new um, uh, edition uh, will be coming soon. Uh, or if you, if you want all the dirty stories, uh, check out his, uh, stick it, my life of sex, drums, and rock and roll memoir written with Ian Gittins. Uh, finally, he just put out a new digital re-release of his nineties guitar Zeus, uh, album featuring, uh, actually it was two albums, uh, put together and now all in one featuring some real heavies, uh, giving helping hands. Okay. Up next is a man who helped add a little more Latin flavor to the Hendrix sound, Gerardo Velez. Best known for performing with Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock in 1969, um, his first professional gig, I'll have you know, which he we just played a, a, a little bit of Red House from that performance. Uh, Velez is a veteran percussionist and drummer who has performed with many artists covering a number of different genres of music. He's also a common member and one of the founders of jazz fusion band Spirogyra. He's played with Nile Rodgers uh, and Sheik, Paul Simon, uh, David Bowie, Sir Elton John, Mark Anthony, Taylor Dane, a whole host of others. And he is a seven-time Grammy nominee and multi-platinum recording artist. He's also quite the entrepreneur with Gerardo Velez Productions, GVP, uh, that have been producing hundreds of shows and events since 1981, nationally and internationally, creating events, galas, concerts, festivals, you name it. Uh, Find everything at uh, GerardoVelez.com. And folks, he is a bundle of energy. I, I am not sure if the guy ever sits down. 
So let's get up close and personal with my new friend, Gerardo Gerardo Velez, welcome to Deeper Digs. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, and thank you for having me on your show. Oh, we're very excited to talk to you and talk a little bit about uh, Jimi Hendrix and all the other things that you've done in your life. So, you know, I, I, I'm beginning uh, with with almost everybody I'm talking to right now is to just first get the thoughts on, you know, COVID uh, in your experience and, you know, what, what you see out there, what, what it's been like and where maybe the future might be, you know, having a 50 plus year career in music all just stop in one moment. Well, that's an interesting question. It's a very poignant question, of course. And uh, I've traveled for 50 years and I've traveled to Zika, Ebola, all the various uh, possible worldwide pandemics that have surrounded uh, all of us mm -hmm. and was able to safely navigate through them. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't have you know, uh, the setup to handle it at this time, as you know, as most people know, although we did have a pandemic department, it was uh, closed. Unfortunately, it was closed before this all happened. So here we are in that state. The question is, I'm very angry. People say, you have a lot of hatred, Arda. What's wrong? I said, no, I'm angry. Because in the 60s, I fought hard with the Young Lords, the Black Panthers, Egyptian Crowns in Manhattan, New York, so that people were able to vote, people were able to live their lives without prejudice, without fear of violence upon them. We fought hard, we got civil rights, we got women's rights, reproductive rights, uh, and I felt we were empowering ourselves as a community based on the middle class, which has eroded to basically nothing today, like in most countries where there's only the rich or the poor. So. What's happening is uh, now with COVID, I've lost many friends. My in-laws from Canada have lost their family and uh, you know their married families, who we know, we know they're not our blood, but we're all a family. Yeah. This is in Canada where they passed away. And I have relatives and friends in the entertainment business who have passed away, who have gotten sick, and everyone across the board has lost their jobs. Everyone across the board has learned their means of productivity. Now for me, uh, luckily I have my event company, which I do special events. But what does that mean? That means I had to transition to using what is available. And that is the internet. Mm -hmm. I have a company that now creates trade shows and other virtual entertainment vehicles that can be used by people to create large Zoom meetings to create their own environmental meetings. This is the way COVID 
has changed the music industry. The live show industry can return and it has to be done in a very interesting and clever way. It's not going to be for the masses, but for people who can afford it, creating what they do in nightclubs, which are booth service. So you create these outdoor booths. We used to do that in the Hamptons for my event company. I had a event company with the New York Stock Exchange, Mercantile Exchange, HBO, Comedy Central, and many other Fortune 500 companies. Basically, they want an environment created, which is a COVID environment. You separate people into little, you know, their own pods, basically. They're responsible for the air that they breathe within those pods. They were outdoors. It makes it safer. We still have to communicate. These things will eventually happen. Some of them are transpiring in Europe and other parts of the world where people are much uh, more concerned with their social commitment to one another. We don't have that in America. We do not, we, we, this is the land of the home and the free and the brave and don't take my guns. Listen, I don't want to take your guns, but I'm going to definitely want to take away your AK-15s, your hand grenades and any other military, paramilitary equipment that you have because that is only for killing other human beings. That is unacceptable in any civilized society that I've ever been around or that I would ever like to be a part of. And I believe most America is like that. What the internet has done is allowed the fringe on both the right and the left. I'm, I'm a Democrat, but we have our eccentrics and they have theirs. And now that fringe element has gotten to be the spokespeople for us, which is incorrect. But he who screams loudest and continues to scream on a daily basis, like the present administration, those on that end of his administration believe everything he says, not because of the individual, but because Trump is a basically a culture or religion based around the non-acceptance of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. So to answer your question about how it affects entertainment, it's brutalized every industry. And the only one I know being entertainment, I've been able to make money in music since I'm, and entertainment since I'm six years old. And now to say, hmm, but I redirected it. Everyone has to redirect their efforts and bring it to the internet because that's where the money is. You want to go where the money is if you're going to have a career yeah, in this area right. or in any area. Yeah. So the internet is the equalizer here and it equalizes the playing field because it's bigger than money, it's bigger than politics, and it's bigger than any individual power. And we have to maintain it. Now, if you're into splinter net, which are individual countries now surrounding their own um, internet communities for themselves, like China has done and other countries have done, closing it off to the rest of us. Those are splinter nets. That also has been a reaction of COVID. Because of COVID, we're missing a lot of the evil that's going on around us, believe you me, Yeah. because we're so preoccupied with what's going on right now. It's the you know, shine something shiny, uh, you know, move something shiny in front of us mm -hmm. and keep us occupied while the thievery is going on behind us. Keep them poor, keep them on at rest, and we'll keep them making the money. So now perhaps we may have a, a chance to get out of COVID with a plan, uh, a plan to unify the medical community because yes, science is correct. Science is true. It is not fake. Everything is science. The ability for us to communicate right now over the internet 
is due to science, is due to that, is due to algorithm, is due to math, sacred geometry, everything revolves around math. But most people don't vibrate at a high enough energy level to warrant that. And that's the following of this president and present administration. They vibrate at a very low level, which allows them to be comfortable in knowing very little. And what they do know, it's easier to, it's hard to convince a fool that's been convinced they've been a fool. They've been fooled. You know what I mean? Of course. It's hard course. to convince them that they've been fooled after they've been fooled. And that's what's happening now. They've been calm. You've been right. suckered. Right. And the money that they're trying to reach now in this present administration is only to support the campaign. 40% is going to the National Republican Committee. 60% is going to Trump. So he's milking his people again, even at the end now, when they think they're as patriotic as they can be, he's making 60% of whatever they're bringing in and putting it in his own pocket. And 40% is going to the, and most people don't realize that because they don't delve deep enough into what's going on and how the political structure is being moved. For instance, eliminating the department, the, the head of the Secretary of Defense. Now he can tell, he believes he can tell the generals, protect me from uh, leaving this. Don't let the Secret Service throw me out. That won't happen because the Joint Chiefs of Staff don't support Trump. They support the United States and they want to get it back to some sort of normalcy so we can deal with our, our, um, our allies around the world and do what we do best, sell arms. That's what we do best. <laughs> We're a war economy. We continue to sell arms to our friends. He's stopping us from doing that. We have to unload these arms to people. Either we blow up or we sell them for someone else to blow up. And that's the bitter reality of the American dream that has gone awry. So if we can get someone who can stabilize the internet uh, feeling, uh, hopefully with, you know, a lot of people want to be happy, rejoice. I'm not happy yet. I think the battle has just begun. And I think the worst part of the battle has just begun. If we don't get the Senate, you know, we're going to be faced with a lot of, you know, uh, inability at, uh, for the next uh, four, hopefully eight years. Wow. That... Gerardo, that uh, that question definitely opened up a can of worms. Uh, but you made some very good points. Uh, uh, you know, a very wide scope, by the way, uh, uh, out there. But you know, COVID has pretty much touched on everything. I think yes. uh, is your point. And in some ways, mostly not good. Obviously, you know, we we've lost almost a quarter of a million Americans. Um, we've got over ten uh, million infections. Uh, you know, and, and, and that's not great, but you know, it's funny. I asked, I've been asking this question since the very beginning with almost every interview that I've had. And at the very, at the, at the beginning, it was very negative. It was like, oh my God, I, you know, hopefully this is going to be short. It's not going to last long. Uh, you know, and then it became, oh my God, this is definitely going into the next year. Uh, geez, I don't know if there's ever going to be concerts. And, you know, in the last couple of months, I've started to hear stories like yourself. Well, I uh, reinvented myself. I came and looked at these other options that I could do 
uh, that uh, are actually working out for me. And so, you know, like all things, it's a double-edged sword. And, um, you know, while I think we all agree the world would be better off without COVID-19, um, you know, at the same time, uh, humans are an incredibly adaptive species and we have learned to adapt. And let's face it, musicians are an extremely adaptive species of the species of human. And so right. that's no surprise that so many musicians are finding, you know, their footing and are able to to move forward uh, and uh, and adapt to uh, the, the current situation. So that's great. So let's get to music here. Sure. You know, tell me a little bit. You grew up in New York. You know what? What you know? You said you started making music or started making a living at six. So I mean, music must just be you know in your soul from the time you were born. Well, I wasn't in music. I was dancing. Dance? I was a dancer. Uh huh. So my sister and I had a dance set. Yeah, uh, yeah. It wasn't uh, like Martha, a yes. professional dance. It was just the two of us who danced at every event and won every contest. Mm hmm. And then we started to make a little money. Then my sister went off to performing arts high school because she was a little older than me. She was in the original cast of Hair. Oh, wow. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. That's Martha. Arts. That's Martha, right? That's Martha. And okay. then she went on to make five albums with Bob Marley and Eric yeah. Clapton and a lot of different people. So she went off and did that. And then I stayed doing uh, dancing, which got me through high school and college teaching dance and also uh, performing. And I really... As a, as a percussionist, I got my first bongos in Mexico at nine. And, uh, you know, I never looked back and just kept getting other instruments and building from there. And, uh, you know, my family, I, you know, I'm, uh, background is Puerto Rican and our culture has, is musically oriented culture. Yes. Music is everywhere. Yeah. And back in the day, in all cultures, that's how you communicated with others. You got together with dance and may I have this dance and so on and so forth. It was a it was a softer, gentler time to meet someone, and uh, and dancing was all part of that community. So I grew up in the in the dance community, and and I excel in that I excelled in that area, and uh, so then you know I went on I was in Catholic schools, grammar school, high school. I went to a seminary to be a priest. Uh, really? You know, was, uh, yeah, because I want to help people. I'm a people yeah. person. Mm -hmm. And for me, I thought that that was the way. And this is 13. I went into the seminary and then my hormones were, you know, kicked in. <laughs> and I, uh, I was like, okay, this is really not for me. And the, the priest said, son, this is not for you. You know, <laughs> you, know you want to help people, but not, not as a priest. You know? Right. Right. And I said, you know, and I realized, and now that that's why I want to give back. And I've been helping with, in a lot of different ways with charities, especially mm -hmm. uh, doing entertainment for various charities but uh yeah that's how i started and then my first professional gig i don't know if you know was what with, was woodstock with Jimi hendrix no that i did not know that was your first professional gig yeah that was the first gig i ever got paid to perform like i had a little group with my friends but we played in with cafe wall we auditioned there van morrison was auditioning there too he had yeah. just come from england yeah I, I didn't you know i just knew this guy man i liked him but, well my sister yeah. also my brother-in-law was Van Morrison's band leader during the, uh, uh, what was that great album? The uh, Moon, Dance. Moon, Moon, yeah, Moon Dance album. Moon, and my yeah. sister was a backup singer with pregnant with her child, right? So we all hung out in Woodstock. We thought, oh, well, Woodstock, we can have a discussion about that. But uh, that's how I, I started with Jimmy. That was my first professional gig. And Woodstock was also my birthday. It started August 15th is my birthday. Really? So it was my 22nd birthday. And uh, my first professional gig. 
So how did you get hooked up with uh, what eventually becomes the Band of Gypsies? Okay. Um, I met Jimmy at a play. Uh, there was a gentleman named Steve Paul. Steve Paul was the manager of Johnny Winter and Edgar Winter, brought them up from Texas. Mm -hmm. Jimmy was already a star, and we were hanging out. And, uh, you know, um, he brought, Michael brought um, Johnny and brought him to uh, the gig. I think that was just before we started working together. It was at uh, the Fillmore, Fillmore East. We were backstage and Johnny came back. Everybody met. And it was so simple because I, they were in the front of the stage and Steve looks up and he said, hey, Jimmy. And, Steve, and Jimmy said, hey, Steve, what's going on? This is, you know, he was so relaxed. Hey, man, you got to meet Johnny. He's a great guitar player. Hey, Johnny. That's what it was from the stage. And then the, uh, this is as he's going, hey, nice to meet you, Johnny. So that, so Steve Paul owned a nightclub in New York called Steve Paul's the scene s-c-e-n-e -E, the scene you got right. to be part of the scene yeah gotta be, be cool seen. and all right, that right and if you work there perform there they let you in for free so i worked under the with a guy named kenny rankin beautiful you're a great singer and he wrote a song about me called velez if you ever have a chance to listen which i'm very honored that he wrote uh, about me and our experience oh, together yeah. but kenny i was also on little david records with uh, George Carlin and that whole group. That's another story we could talk about. But Kenny got me in because we performed the Steve Paul scene. And one night I went into Steve Paul scene with my friends. I had my own, you know, I was, uh, I knew everybody in New York and I knew the whole scene really, really well. And I, you know, I had like a whole row of people with me. And I was performing with Rick Derringer, who's a dear friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And at that time, he had on Hang On, Snoopy, Snoopy, Hang On. I think he was 17. His brother was 18. Yeah. Uh, and they were the house band. They weren't the house band. Rick always corrects me. He says, we were not the house band. They weren't the house band. But they, but they were, were always there. They were there a lot. <laughs> In my coaches. Yeah, I know, Rick. But you were there a lot. Okay. So anyway, Rick was there because I knew if he was there, he was always a gracious guy. And would let me perform mm -hmm. so i got up and jeff beck was playing jeff rick and and his band rich band brother on drums drums or bass? brother on drums i think big money i forget right now i gotta get all this stuff uh, recalculated in my brain but his brother was in the band with him as well after we performed i went back to my seat and i sat down and i got tapped on the shoulder and it was jimmy and leaned over and said hey man that was some great playing do you want to come up and jam when i'm playing so I turned around and said, all right, man, let's do that. Boom. And, and that was it. And my friends, oh, my God, that's Jimi Hendrix. You know that. I'm going, so what? Because <laughs> I'm 20 years old and I'm creating my own destiny. I don't give a crap about Jimi Hendrix. As far as I'm concerned, he's just too loud. And I don't know what's going to go on with this guy. I play percussive instruments. Where am I going to fit in with this dude? That's all I was thinking about. Right. Because, you know, like I said, I'm 20 and I'm on my own journey. So. We go and we play, and it goes great. Jeff Beck's like trying to outdo Jimmy, and Jimmy's so cool. Jeff Beck's going, you know, because he's a blues player. And yeah. he'd dig into a note in Jimmy's face and go, <laughs> and Jimmy would look at him and go, <laughs> and play something really fluid and get him really angry. <laughs> That's great. Then we left. We had a little joke about that going back. So he tapped me, said, man, I guess, I guess Jeff got a little pissed off. He tapped me on my back. And that was the beginning of our friendship. So well, we laughed. 
It sounds and like Jimmy has a history of, uh, of messing with those British guitar players. Uh, you know, the famous story of uh, Monterey Pop, where uh, Mama Cass uh, leans over to Pete Townsend and says, uh, hey, I think he's stealing your act. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe he thought that, you know, thing was his, but maybe it was. But anyway, Peter Townsend then said afterwards, he said, I'm no Jimmy Hendrix. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, but he was. Yeah. But, you know, I was gracious and they were good for, you know, they became, they began, became good mates. Right. Mm. Um, so that's how I met Jimmy. And then Jimmy said, hey, man, I'm recording over at uh, Media Sound. Uh, Media Sound, I was with the record, but Media Sound, you want to come over? Now, and then it be, uh, became a nightclub. Now it's a restaurant. It's on 57th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And uh, we went to record. In the other recording studio was uh, the Mamas and the Papas. You know, John uh, was there. And um, uh, the Stones were in another room recording. So John Phillips and Keith Richards uh, we're dominating the bathroom because they were getting high the whole time in the bathroom. And we would go, hey, boom, 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 boom. I got a piss. Get that one. Fuck you know, I'm going to tell this one a day. You know? It was like that. So we recorded for 10 hours. And it was great. And then afterwards, we went up to the lounge. And, I'm, you know, we all smoked cigarettes. I'm out there spicy. So, so but, was, it, was, know, this, this was this Axis Bold as Love? Know, is that uh, the, the, the album? No, 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 no. There's no, here's the thing. When Jimmy had already done those albums, we were the first fusion band because what he, as, and I'll tell you how, Jimmy said to me afterwards, he said, no, right. I'm breaking up the experience and I want to do something that has other music in it. I want, I love what you play because you add Latin, African, and you understand mm -hmm. rock and roll at the same time. This is fun. It's interesting and fun playing with you. I said, I felt the same way. I said, but I play acoustic, dude. You'll drown me out. He said, no, I'm going to bring in my buddy from the Army who plays bass and my other buddy from the Army plays rhythm guitar. That will allow me, by him playing rhythm guitar, it will allow me to do other things, to not only try to just be me, to try to you know, move on. I'm tired yeah, yeah. of purple You wanted to get me on the power trio uh, thing of the, of the moment, right? Yeah. yeah. Totally. And while we were doing that, Miles Davis was doing Bitches Brew in the studio with all the studio guys. I mean, I introduced Jimmy uh, to Miles because my girlfriend, I live with twins, and we had this other girl that was, oh, you know, of I mean, course we were you all did. together. Well, you know, it's free life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah man. It's free life. I lived with four girls for five years at that time. But it was free love back then. So anyway, we were going over our house, and Miles lived uh, two doors down on 77th Street, just just off the West Side Highway. Uh, West End Avenue, actually. And he uh, he calls me over, and uh, I'm walking out with the girls. He said, hey, man, come on, man. What you got, man? You got a lot of money, man? Father Rich or some shit, man? How you get them bitches, man? How you get all them bitches? I said, hey, Miles Davis, right? I, I I'm asking you a question. <laughs> God damn it, give me a goddamn answer. You don't have me back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's how we started. We got high together. So that's how we started. Our well, wait a minute. Well, I'm going to anyway, stop you right here. I'm going to stop you right here, Jordan, because I got to ask a question. So the concept of Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis coming together, that, that was that really going to happen? Here's the thing. Jimmy was in the middle of a lot of turmoil with Michael Jeffries yeah. getting out of his management deal. 
That's why after we did Woodstock, he had he was contract he was contractually obligated to do a tour uh, as a trio, yeah. playing the hits to make the money and also to generate attention yep. to the music, right? So we were put on hold. He said, I gotta do this G because you know there's no more money. Now he used to pay me, he always carried at least 10 grand in his pocket. You know, well, don't forget this is back in the time yeah. of cash yeah. and checks. So who carried no. checks? You know, yes, yeah. you got you were sophisticated. Not a lot of checks. credit cards Everybody back then, right? You know, yeah. Yeah, there's no credit cards. And you know, people ran a lot of you always you always had cash, but it wasn't that much depth. You know, today forget about it. But then you always had cash and he had a, always had this like it was like a fanny pack. It was pre-fanny pack, fanny pack with 10 grand in it all the time. And that's how he paid. He paid me a thousand dollars a week. He did. And then so with the Miles Davis question. Yeah, the Miles Davis question was they were gonna get together. And we were, you know, talking okay. about doing something when he got back. So he didn't get, he didn't come back from that tour. He called me and said, I'm coming back. That never materialized. Miles went off, did the record. And then he was the first guy yeah. to break out doing Fusion, which I later did with Spyro the Gyro, I was originally right? in yeah. Spyro Gyro, yeah. the yeah. best-selling contemporary yeah. Fusion band. So we did a lot of cold bills with Miles. And he and I talked about that over the years because it was Miles Davis and Spyro Gyro building. And what it was like, and if they would have got together, like I said, oh, you would have drove them nuts, man. You were pain in the ass. And Miles would laugh because I always told him like it is because yeah. it didn't affect me yeah. one way or another, you know. And he yeah. was a snotty yeah. guy. He, he, Miles definitely had an attitude, that's for sure. Uh, whereas Jimmy, well, Jimmy was yeah. far more laid back, right? Jimmy was a kind, uh, a kind, sensitive, uh, empathetic individual who was an observer more than an activator or an insider. I was the insider in our, in our hang because I knew all the venues and I'd say, okay, you're in town. I got it set up, coming to pick you up. I'd come and pick him up with, you know, the cars, the drugs, the girls, and we'd go out and party. And we'd go from the Salvation to Angano's to this place, to that place. And don't forget, it was, a, it was like telephone, you know, so how do you communicate? I make a couple of calls during the day. I said, I'm coming by with Jimmy Hendrix. Have a table ready for us. So they would. So I looked like, you know, the king of the strip, basically. And I took Jimmy all around because he was, like I said, he was from Seattle. Yeah, that West more, Coast passive. You know, this background. is like, whoa, yeah. Yeah. as well as I'm loving it at the same time. That's like, we always carry a little pen and paper to write stuff down. Uh, new ideas, songs, and so on. And, and that was the, the creative vibe. And if he and Miles would have got together, who knows? It would have been fantastic. And I would have liked to think oh, yeah, I'd be a yeah, part of it. Definitely, instrumentally, would have fit perfectly into that. So uh, I can see that happening. So so back to the, the Woodstock thing. So it's your birthday. Had you guys been there uh, before the, the, the Monday morning performance, uh, the, like the night before? I mean, what, what, you know, tell me about when you yes. got in. And, we, and, uh, um, I was in New York on my the early part of my birthday. Then we drove up later on. We went to Harlem for a minute, then uh, drove up with my with the girls and in our limo. And uh, we got up there and then they said, everything is closed. There's nowhere you can go. And we said, oh, shit, we barely got there. 
because we had to go all the way around instead of going straight up 95 to get to uh, uh, Kingston. We had to go all the way and go up 80 and come around. But anyway, then we got to the house, our house. Then they drove us in vehicles and some guys went in the helicopter. There was a back road. So you had the main roads coming in to the festival grounds and there was a back road which they brought us through. And then they brought us up to a house. Mm -hmm. It was a house on the mm -hmm. farm, on the estate. I don't know if it was Yasger's house or if it was a house that we stayed in. And we got there like, we were supposed to go on at 12 o'clock at night. So we probably got there at eight or nine or something like that, you know? Uh, and I was there the whole time because it was my birthday on the, on the, the 15th. So I, you know, I was taking a lot of uh, stimulants. I was a, you know, a speed freak at that time. So I was doing a lot of methamphetamine and stuff and I didn't sleep for weeks. So I was partying the whole time and I was going down to the festival grounds uh, the whole time. And then I went back to the house and I said, man, it's freaking crazy, man. The band sound great. And I said to Jim, remember that band we saw in town, the Tinker Street Cafe, that Cosmo Santana Latin band? They were slamming, man. So, and Jimmy would say, okay, okay. And uh, so then they drove us in, like I mentioned. Uh, and we sat in that, that house for about basically nine o'clock at night, uh, till seven o'clock in the morning when they finally said, okay, you're going to go up. But in between that, they told us three different yeah. times, get ready, you're going to go up. So, you know, we were a bunch of hippies dropping acid and mushrooms and stuff. And, you know, we, we'd get prepared for the, the show and no, no, you're not, you're not going up. <laughs> oh, damn it. Now we're all tripping out. So we would be playing in the house and partying in the house. I'd go in the limo, go down, roll down the window, say, ladies, you want to come up with us? Come on up to the house. Then we'd go up and Jimmy would give me the sign. I'd, he'd go like, yeah, man, I need some, I need some time. I said, okay, ladies, we're going back down. Anybody, guys, everybody, we're going back down. Get back in the car. I'd take, get to send everybody back and we'd have a little meeting. And, you know, he was a very concerned guy. Jimmy was about the music. Right. He was not a drug guy. I was the drug guy. Right, he was right. not. Right. Just let's get that straight. I always tell people yeah. he was a dabbler. He's the guy who yeah. goes, and good to go. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and we were the guys left here. Right. It's a tableful. Everybody gave him stuff, and he'd go like this. And we all did. We go, wow, holy what wow, hash? I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know what that is. So, um, both of the time. So you know, uh, you, you got to play that gig. Uh, and, and was that the, was that the only gig that you played uh, with Band of Gypsies or? No, we, uh, well, we played at the Woodstock Playhouse. We played at a club called Salvation. Uh, we played in Harlem. Uh, and then I think we played one other place. So we did like five, yeah. maybe yeah. six gigs. That was it. Uh, because it was an experimental band. If you look at the, if you look at our set list, you'll see those instrumental yeah. songs like Jam at the House. You know, I co-wrote, I didn't get any credit. Didn't make any money off of it either because I was a kid. You know, I didn't know any better. And when we sat around working ideas like a Jam at the House, I came up with that whole thing, which is a Mozambique beat. And then we went into Jimmy's session with that. So, you know, we added to it in that way. So when you go over and you look at um, the various songs that are instrumental and the other ones like Isabella and different 
songs that are very instrumental leaning, it was because Jimmy had a rhythm guitar player that he felt would allow him to stretch out further in these new songs, which had a lot of jazz scores and a lot of primal feel that the percussion was bringing to it. So Michael said, listen, you know, I don't know this kid, Jerry Velez, who the hell is he? You should be using this guy, Juma. And Jimmy said, yeah, I mean, we met Juma, great guy. We all got together. It works. So Juma brought yeah, you African have the Latin. influence. Yeah, you know, yeah, I call yeah. Juma and the you African the Latin prince. Influence, so the two pieces, yeah. You know, so he brought the African influence and I brought the uh, Latino and rock pop influence, you know, rock influence that Jimmy and I. Right, had. right, right, right. So, um, you know, September 21st, uh, 1970, you know, uh, you know, you, you just filled me in on something. Jimmy wasn't much of a drug attic you know drug dabbler he rarely got in but yet that's what everybody assumes is you know what caused his passing and and it seems like it's more complex than that it seems like uh you know at least to us that we've looked at uh you know he was under a lot of stress a lot of management issues uh and uh you know the guy just couldn't get a break and i think it was more an accident than anything wouldn't you say uh, well, yes, if you look at it from that perspective, yes, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with any of the stories about Michael Jeffries and his involvement with a lot of uh, um, uh, shady people, mm -hmm. you know, listen, there's a Cold War going on. Mm -hmm. The Brits are uh, spying on us, we're spying on the Brits. The story goes, he started Reprise Records as a front for British intelligence. Jimmy was his main act that blew up. And eventually he died mysteriously over the French Alps, right? Michael Jeffries, mm -hmm. never to be found, body never found. That's a true story. Anyway, the woman that Jimmy was with, Monica, who called me before she committed suicide and always said, I had nothing to do with Jimmy's death. I had nothing to do with it. You know, why am I, everyone's blaming me, death threats, I can't go anywhere. Said so Monica, you gotta let it go. But what, hap what happened was, from what I'm told, Michael told her, here you go, here are a couple of downers, take these downers and uh, give it to Jimmy at the end because I need him for interviews in the morning. And whatever he gave to Mike, uh, to Jimmy, uh, Jimmy was, you know, puked on his own vomit, supposedly, and died to death, you know, fixated, you know, uh, um, yeah. basically drowning on his own puke. Yeah. Um, and, uh, then she said that they put her in, she called Michael hysterical. They put her in a room. Now the art from the time of supposed death to the time that the paramedic uh, unit arrives was a four hour time difference. Oh. And, uh, so she was in another room while Michael's boys were taking care of stuff in the other room, mm. because just like Charlie Parker and, and John Coltrane, if if your talent is going to leave you, you might as well kill them and that they're better, you're better off dead owning their publishing. So he was better off owning Jimmy's publishing because that would make Jimmy the icon that he is today. Because, you know, and he would be embarrassed the way people think about him right now because he was a great musician. But other than that, he was an irregular guy on an adventure of a lifetime. That's what he was, you know. But once he stepped on stage, he was a completely other individual. We call that our altar. That is right. the holy grail. That is the holy place. And it moves from place to place. It can be in your living room. 
if we're performing and raising that spirit, that's our own. Right. And that's what we talked about that a lot. What do you What do you think he might uh, be if he had survived today? Well, he's very intellectually minded. Uh, he had a very analytical mind because when we worked in the studio, he worked on all the parts. He would go in and and and, and work the console. Uh, Ed Kramer would set up stuff. Jimmy would come in and start them working on stuff, and go, oh, let me go back out and do it and redo parts and you know Mitch Mitchell where he. I mean, Noel was a, a rhythm guitar player and Jimmy played most of the tracks, played bass, you know. He was really into the music. He taught me how to record. He taught me uh, um, etiquette in the studio. I came by one time with a bunch of babes and champagne and drugs. And He's like, no, no, this is a work environment. Said, on, right, man. right. I said, let's do it, yeah. bro. And he's saying, get them out of here. We're working. Yeah. I said, whoa, sorry, man. No, said, the, fuck? Get him. Get, no. the first time I ever saw him, like, whoa, dude, okay, you know? He was really, we're working, man. And I'm going, sorry, man. I, I left and I felt really, it impacted me to this day. You know, it was, the, it was the, my first real lesson learned as to business is business and the rest yeah. goes. And Jimmy was a, as I'm saying, even when we were partying, he was like, you know, go ahead, you guys party. I'm going to work on my parts. And I'm going to work with Billy and show Billy the part. And Larry, I'm going to show Larry the part. Because yeah. they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. I love those guys, but they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. And they should say that. So they weren't getting the parts at the beginning. And Jimmy was a loving brother to all of us. And he would stay and show the guys. And they nailed it. But it's because of that kind of commitment to your to friendship. And that's what he was about. So he would have had, he would have been one of those guys, like say Paul McCartney, who would just keep creating. Yeah. Coming up with brilliant stuff. He'd be working with animators. He would be working with, you know, in 3D. You know, and man, we were taking trips and thinking in 3D in our own minds. We didn't need machinery, especially back then, because we thought it was, you know, the jury wasn't in on drugs yet. And, and we were told that mind expansion would take your mind from 10% usage to 50, 60, 70% usage of your brain. It was like, how can I resist? And being ADD and dyslexic, uh, those kind of stimulants help me focus. Mm -hmm. Now they give kids Ritalin. Yeah. I was taking <laughs> that. That's Ritalin for me. That right. was. They didn't know what ADD yeah. was or dyslexia. Right. When I started taking that, I said, oh, my God, I can finally focus on one thing. So, of course, the jury came in later and we realized that's not the way to do it. But uh, it was in that innocence that we went after. You know yeah. what I mean, Christian? Yep. It was about that innocence of maybe, man, we could be a lot better than our and the, 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 than our parents in the past. You mm -hmm. know. So you know, we took the risk, and a lot of us uh, died. A lot of us got brain damage, and a lot of us succeeded. Yeah. So such is life, yep. man. So, and that's what I think Jimmy would have been an, an explorer to the end. He's a Sagittarian. Sagittarians are explorers. Right. right. I'm a Leo. Yeah. We're like this. We're fire signs, man. That's how we bonded. Oh, man. That's, that's great insight. I really appreciate that. So, you know, Jimmy's not around, but there are still, a, 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 you know, a relevancy and a huge interest in what he accomplished in a very short period of time. You know, there are tribute acts that uh, are all over the world. Uh, you know, a, you know, a, a favorite of ours, I think, is uh, Kiss the Sky uh, featuring Jimmy Blue uh, in the role of Jimi Hendrix. And I, I think uh, I, you're, you're very aware of them. Uh, I, I, if I remember right, I think you've actually played with them, right? 
first of all, they're the best in that. And I'll tell you why. Because they're not a tribute band. They're a recreation band. And Mike, who put it all together, I mean, he's really the brains behind it. God bless him. Mike gotcha. Gotcha, yep. brother. He's he's yeah, man, because what he's done, he said, no, we're not gonna be a tribute band. We're gonna recreate each major event that Jimmy did, Monterey, Woodstock. I mean, he has a guy that looks like me, <laughs> a guy playing congas, and he had the congas that the I The exact I mean, congas and everything. everything. Huh? Oh. Everything, the app, the shirt, he had a shirt made like this. I mean, attention to detail. And then you got Jimmy Blue. Yeah. This guy not only looks like Jimmy, first of all, he's a slinky little sexy dude like Jimmy was, and he's a left-handed, upside down guitar player. Yeah. How I mean, how could it be more authentic? Yeah. Good? You know, if he didn't actually meet Jimmy, I would say, you know, you are Jimmy reincarnated because when he gets up on that stage. From all the other acts that I've seen, I look at Jimmy and I go, you go, brother. Because, like I said, there's a lot of guys that can play the parts. But when you actually look at them, that's not Jimmy. It's guys doing a tribute to Jimmy. They do a recreation. You feel like you're at that concert. You're living and breathing uh, the light show. That they even has the light show from back then. He licensed the light show. I mean, the attention to detail is beautiful. So any of your listeners that are listening out there, these guys are fantastic. If I if it wasn't for COVID, I'd be up there jamming with them whenever I can because it's always a pleasure to play with them, hang out with, with the guys. And also they, they're keeping the spirit of Jimmy alive more than any of the other bands I work with. I last year I have a band, Hendrix by Hendrix. Hendrix by Hendrix. With yep. Jimmy's second cousin, mm -hmm. Reggie Hendrix. We toured last year. We did several events. Uh, you know, in the spirit of Jimi Hendrix celebrating the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Right. But Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky are continuing that tradition every day. So I applaud them and, and I, you know, and I'm, I'm there to support them. How do we help them? Well, Gerardo, we, there is a yeah. lot uh, that we can do. Uh, you've done more than enough today to, uh, to help this on. You know, Jan uh, November 27th, uh, uh, Jimmy Blue and Kiss the Sky will be performing virtually. And uh, uh, we're hoping a lot of people are going to come and uh, get to see uh, what you've just expressed uh, in uh, what that, uh, that uh, band is all about, a recreation of the seminal moments uh, in Jimi Hendrix life it's absolutely christian because we're here to, we're here to talk about jimmy you know the exploration we did together our relationship you know that so where does it go from here you know what happens to it after i go and all the other guys are gone man we're getting our interviews now but it's those guys that are carrying the tradition yeah. and and when you do a recreation style that's like saying that's the way it was yeah. you know the temple that that guy just built, that was the temple that we worked on. You know what I mean? That's that's recreation. I was working with them and before because I really wanted to help promote mm -hmm. them, but I wanted to continue doing my own thing. So I went and continuing with Hendrix by Hendrix. Otherwise, I would have been helping uh, kiss the sky because I believe in what they're doing. And I believe in, the, in that they're the future of the tradition. Well, Gerardo Velez, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs today. Well, thank you so much, Deeper Digs. Best, we need you out there, Christian. We need you to document all this and to share this with your listeners. So thanks oh, a lot. I appreciate that. Thanks. Because he knows how to fix that groove.
Ah, I tricked you. Thought it was going to be all Jimi Hendrix. Okay, so I had to throw a little Nile Rodgers in there uh, with uh, with Gerardo um, uh, playing. Um, man, I just love that guy. He, he's such an infectious personality. I can see why Jimmy and so many others want that in their band. Please go check out Gerardo's website, GerardoVelez.com. Okay, don't forget, Friday, November 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Kiss the Sky presents a live stream of their annual Jimi Hendrix birthday bash direct from the historic Bearsville Theater in Woodstock, New York. The world's greatest tribute to Jimi Hendrix, Kiss the Sky, recreates Hendrix's most iconic concert moments in full replica wardrobe and gear so well that they have had the honor of playing with all the surviving members of Hendrix's own bands, including Billy Cox, The Last Gypsy. There will be special guests, um, as best you can do in the age of COVID, but uh, I, I have some inside information. So please come and hang out uh, at uh, the virtual bearsvilletheater.com or you can go to uh, at Kiss the Sky tribute pages on Facebook for more information. I'll be there. Oh, and the Muses will be there too. In fact, they had the pleasure of interviewing Rosalie Brooks for Jimmy Month. So go listen to that podcast as well. Yes, the Muses and I will be there at 7 p.m. Eastern. So come party with us. Next week, I will have two deeper digs for you. We'll uh, we'll conclude our Jimi Hendrix uh, 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 month uh, here uh, just in time for his birthday, a little Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, I hope you're all staying safe and doing the right thing here. I know it's hard, but uh, we got to we got to try to make this uh, COVID thing go away. Um, But we got something for you to do in between, right? Lots of podcasts. Okay, up first will be one of Jimmy's oldest friends and collaborators, Billy Cox, along with John Hammond. And we will end with the guitar virtuoso Vernon Reed, uh, uh, Juma Sultan, and finally a chat with the man himself, Jimmy Blue, before he hits the stage with Kiss the Sky. Come on back for those as we finish up Jimi Hendrix Month here on Deeper Digs. Until then, keep up the rockin'. Well, I by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks.